Well, this evening I want to talk about uh, Bhagwa Jiang, uh, the, the martial arts system based upon circle walking uh, that lots of people practice. Not quite as popular as Tai Chi, not quite as uh, widespread, especially in the West, um, but still a lot of people practice Bhagwa Jiang every day. I'm doing this uh, podcast on my own again. Still nobody else here because uh, lockdown and all that. So I'm getting used to these um, solo style chats. I feel a bit less crazy talking to myself now than I did uh, a few weeks ago, but uh, a few months ago even. But yeah, so getting used to this, sat here on my own. So, um, uh, Bhagwan Jang, uh, the reason I want to talk about this is because, well, firstly, because it's one of the most requested subjects, actually. Uh, when we, I get lots of messages come through, um, quite a few, I, probably, probably 10, 15 or something now, have asked specifically for Bhagwa. I mean, lots of people have messaged in, and there's a whole plethora of subjects, but Bhagwa keeps coming up, you know. And once, once there's enough of a, a pattern for people wanting to know about something, then I'll talk about it. And, and Bhagwa Jang is one of those. The problem with talking about Bhagwa Jang um, is that Really, if I talk about it, um, if I talk about the principles involved in the practice of Bhagwa, uh, then all of a sudden it becomes quite a controversial subject um, because uh, every style has its own principles. Tai Chi has its principles, uh, Shaolin has its principles, everything, Qigong has its principles, meditation has its principles, you know. And these principles have to be adhered to. But the problem is, is there's, there's disagreement on what the principles actually are. And, and Bhagwa Jang especially, um, I'm quite aware that the way that I practice Bhagwa maybe is a little different from, from how some other people do. So it's quite a controversial one. And, and the problem with, with talking about something that, that's controversial, even if it's something that's not important, like Bhagwa, you know, I mean, really, it's not world politics, it's not curing starvation problems in certain parts of the world or, or racism in the West or I don't know any of these important things. No, it's Bhagwa Jang, but still people would just get crazy, crazy angry. It's a funny one, isn't it? Like, if you disagree with something, to me the sensible thing is to go, okay, I disagree. Why does that person think this? Why does this person think this? And then you think about it and then you come up with it. And maybe if you need to contact the person, you say, well, I disagree and I want to know why you think this. Nope, that's not the way of the world. What happens is people just uh, swear and shout and, and get really angry because, I don't know, people are angry, I guess. Mm. And I've noticed an increase in anger during the, the COVID situation. People are so cross. Like the, the, the level of rage involved in people's online interactions, not just being with me, with, with each other, is, is um, crazy. And I think that's sad, isn't it? Is, is that what the world's come to, that we have to vent? Is this what we do to, to survive a difficult situation? We, we vent and we, we abuse people on the internet? I, I guess it is. It's a crazy thing. So I'm expecting some rage. I'm expecting some um, venting over my ideas on Bagua, especially because some people seem to think it's the most important thing in the world to be right. That being said, in Bagua, I want to outline some of the key principles to me. And what I do is I choose some of the ones that I think highlight um, how the style functions. So if you're not familiar with Bagua, what it is, is it's, it's an internal martial art uh, in the same category as Tai Chi or something like that, uh, that, that you walk in a, a circle performing a series of things called palm changes. So Bagua doesn't even really have a form as such. It does because you can do the eight palm changes, there's eight of them, you can do them in sequence if you want to and that kind of makes a form, um, but actually it doesn't have a form as such, what it has is eight different ways of changing direction 
whilst walking a circle, you know. So you, you tend to learn them in order, single palm change, the double palm change, and so on and so on. Um, and you tend to do them in sit, but you don't have to. Later, some of the later styles of Baguara additions to the system, they added forms, and you do get um, flowing forms like Techi. But most of the time, it, it, classical Baguara should be eight palm changes uh, done whilst walking in a, in a circle, you know, with your, your hands out towards the center of the circle. It's a very strange martial art. Some people say it's the most Taoist of the arts. Um, I guess it is because it incorporates I Ching theory, I Ching, like classic of change, trigrams and, and hexagrams and so on and so on. Um, but whether it came from Taoist or whether it didn't, who knows? It, it doesn't really matter with these arts, but it definitely uses a lot of their philosophy behind what they're doing. It's a strange art because it sits very much on the bridge between Neigong, and I don't mean Neigong as in martial arts, I mean Neigong as in spiritual development, energetic development, internal development, sits at the bridge between that and martial arts. You could argue that any internal martial art does, but Bagua especially like, has a synthesis, synthesis of these two parts coming together. So it has a lot of components to it within its circle walking practice that are pure Neigong, um, that don't actually have a martial function. Um, and I've seen people, like a directly applicable one, um, I've seen people try to create martial applications of some of them, and it doesn't really work very well. You see some crazy, um, some crazy uh, interpretations of things um, that, that, that I don't think is quite right. But again, it's only my opinion, and I understand that other, other people have a, a different take on it. And that's okay, because I'm, I'm a rational human being, and I can, I can listen to alternate opinions. <laughs> oh. So, sorry, intriguing. Ooh, rather cold gross tea. The key thing with Bagua then, the main thing I want to highlight, the first principle uh, that I think is really important to understand in Bagua Zhang is it is not the same as Tai Chi. It doesn't function in the same way. It doesn't mean they don't have shared qualities. They do. They have shared qualities. They're both based upon um, relaxation and lengthening of the tissues um, and internal stretch. Um, and uh, the Dantian is a component to it, and, and many of the things are the same. Song and Ting people talk about in Tai Chi, which is release and listening. This is the same, or, or mental absorption into the body, really. This is all the same in Bhagwa Zhang. There are certain shared qualities um, that are there. That is true, and this is why they get categorized uh, together, uh, considered sort of one family of arts, if you like. On top of that, there's definitely been some sharing between some of the styles as well. Uh, so there's, there's some crossovers a little bit, and you can see especially in some of the, the more intermediate forms in some of the Tai Chi systems, they've incorporated some Bagua principles and the other way around. So there's been some sharing, so they're, they're kind of mixed. But that being said, there are some principles that are very, very different. So sometimes you'll see people say, oh, Bagua is just Tai Chi in circles, walking in circles. That's not the case, actually. No, it works quite differently. Um, there's some different mechanics, mainly because it's based around a different martial strategy. Um, but even if you take away that, uh, it still has some differences based upon its sort of energetic development and what it does with the inside of the body as well. If someone were to do pure Tai Chi or like on its own or pure Bagua on its own, just on their own, you would get, you would have distinct differences in the way that the body is organized, the power is organized and so on and so on. Um, but a lot of people do the two together. So there tends to be a, cross, a crossover a little bit. So it is a different system. And it has some very clear principles in it. And the first one I want to I make clear, in my opinion, in Bagua, is you do not twist the spine in Bagua. And I'm aware that that's probably going to be the one that contradicts the majority of how many, many people practice. Because obviously, if you've ever seen Bagua, it's, it's turned. The body is twisted. The body is twisted. 
And, and I'll see time and time again writing where people say, oh, turn your spine, turn your spine, twist your spine. So the whole spine is being worked during Bhagwa. They say Bhagwa is a spinal exercise. It's true that there is a spinal exercise in Bhagwa going on, but actually the spine does not twist. You don't twist the spine. So it's not like I have the spine and then I turn it like a cloth to twist my body. For several reasons. The first one is martial. The first one is martial. If I were to look at the strategy of Bhagwa, with the exception maybe of Yin style, maybe, but a lot of the others, um, Yin style has grappling, of course, but it, it has a lot of striking as well. But if you look at some of the other Bhagwa, there's a lot of throws, a lot of grappling, especially in the Chung style and the, and the Gao um, and branch of that as well. And, and, and throwing obviously involves contact with someone, like a very strong bridge. You've got someone's weight on, you've got someone's weight on them. You, you, you know, it's sweaty and smelly and all that kind of stuff, but you, you've got two people clashing or, or, or interacting with each other very close. And if you've never done it, if you haven't done any grappling, you'll know how much pressure is put upon you. Now you might say, well, yes, but I'm a Bhagwa master, so I will slip that power and so on and so on. Yeah, in a perfect world, but still, combat is not perfect. And if there's any kind of um, you know, interaction that's not compliant in some way, you're going to take some pressure into your, your body. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to take your pressure into essentially what is your, one of your weakest joints, which is the joint between the vertebra. So what they're doing, if people twist the spine or the vertebra, what they're essentially doing is taking their weakest joint and turning it. And then what happens is then they're making contact with someone or, or they're trying to build power from that weak point. Now, if, you, if you've ever done any kind of combative work and, and power has gone into your body or you've done your fighting, you'll know that what will happen is that power goes to the weakest place. That's what happens. If you watch when you, you grapple, like people will go and the hips will fold if, if the weight's coming onto them or something like that, or, because the power will go to the weakest joint. It will go to the thing that folds. And what happens is if your spine is twisted, that power goes to your spine. Um, and you know what, what will happen is then your, your stability in the spine is not there. Um, but in more extreme cases, they actually damage your back because do you really want to twist those vertebras right there in the belly of your back and then take all that pressure into your body? I don't think so. The spine should always be stabilized by the muscles either side of it um, and, the, and the structuring of the Ming Men region, the lower back region, and the way that we shape the tissues in the internal arts. Um, and what these do is they support the spine so that it doesn't receive any force. And every time you twist your spine, you're actually putting power into that, uh, into that weak spot. So that doesn't mean you shouldn't turn your spine. Like, definitely not. It's okay to twist the spine as an exercise, but not in a martial art. It's not, it's not wise. So, what, so do I mean that you, you don't twist the body? No, definitely not. The body does twist uh, in Bagua. But there's a slightly different way of doing it. And this is where I think some people make a mistake is you don't make the, the, the spine the thing that twists. What you do in Bhagwa is you have the, the spine is like a column. All right, it's a curvy column, but it's a column. And then what you have is coming off of the spine is the rib cage and then the pelvis on the bottom, right? And what you do is the spine is stabilized. I don't know if I can show you this with my hands, this unhelpful sign language. And what I have is the spine here. So the spine is on the back and the, the rib cage and the pelvis come above. And you turn the rib cage above the pelvis with the spine as the pivot. So what it means is that the torso will actually twist and rearrange itself um, from the, the sort of from the focal point of the spine. What would you call that? From the anchor of the spine or something like that? So the spine is at the back. So if I organize my body, this is me twisting my spine. So what happens if I twist my spine right now is the spine is the center of my twist. Whereas if I come forward a little bit and I turn the soft tissues on the front of the body, like forward from the spine, spine becomes the point of reference, but it's not the thing that twists. 
Okay, the body, the torso is distorted, not the spine. The result of this is the spine will turn a little bit, but not very much. And it's only just enough uh, to, to give your freedom for your ribs and your pelvis to rearrange themselves and your diaphragm, which is a major component of that twist. Um, but your, your vertebra are not turned very much. It means that the muscles either side of the spine can still stabilize um, your spine. You see this in a lot in the sort of more wushu athletic versions of Bagua. They'll want to almost turn their body around to the back sometimes, especially on some of the sort of Taoist mountain versions that they really want to twist the body to the back too much and the spine, the spine is destabilized. Any fighter will tell you that you don't want to receive pressure into a, into a, twisted, into a twisted spine. So that's the first one. Second reason we don't twist the spine um, is essentially because of the way that the power moves in Bagua. So sometimes people think the power comes through the spine. It doesn't, uh, not at all, not in the case of Jin. So Jin, the special kind of power that's released in Bagua, comes through the inside of the torso. So Jin is a controversial subject, isn't it? Uh, Jin, if you don't know, to me means the expression of power from the inside. That's what it is. And, but that, that expression of power from the inside can be muscular, like just striking something with percussive power, uh, like an external martial art, so that has gin. Um, but there is a different kind of gin that's used in the internal arts. The big challenge in any martial art is how do you get the power, especially in Asian martial arts, how do you get the power from the foot to the hand? That's the challenge, how do you do that? Because they generally try to drive their power from the, from the floor. So you've got different ways of doing it. You've got the external mechanic, which is basically that you, you well, generally, I, I'm generalizing, but generally you drive your rear foot usually into the ground. Um, and what happens is, because I push the power down, um, essentially through the hinges of the body and, the, and through the muscular system, the body will send a force the other way. So then what I use my hinges and a turning of the body, almost like a centrifugal power that pushes up through my legs out to create a percussive strike. So we could say that in this way that the power travels through the joints, through the muscles, through the bones. This would be what they call an external way of delivering power. It's very efficient. I mean, to be honest, if you're purely interested in fighting, um, which is a strange pursuit in, in my opinion, but if you're purely interested in fighting, uh, then that's the most sensible way to deliver power because it's efficient, it's quick, and it's very easy to build power that way. The internal way is different because the internal methodology tries to bypass um, the bones and the muscles and it tries to deliver um, a process of release so that the tough, soft tissues uh, stretch through the body to create a kind of uh, expansive energy that comes from the foot to the hand. So it's not based upon hinges, uh, it's not based upon leverage or, or skeletal system being used, and it's not based upon contraction of the muscles. It's based upon the opposite, it's based on letting go of power. So the more I release, the more I release, the more I release, the more it moves through me. If, you, if you've um, ever done any Tai Chi training, especially in the Huang system or something, you'll know what I mean by this sort of release of power. But this kind of power doesn't travel through the bones, it travels through the connective tissues. So this then became the challenge for, for um, internal martial arts, was how to get that power from the foot to the hand. Um, and the idea was that if they travel it through the soft tissues, they want to move it through the density of the torso. So they, they line up the torso in a very specific way. Uh, through opening the back and, and raising the head and sinking the, uh, releasing the chest and all of the principles in the internal martial arts. So that essentially your, your abdomen becomes a little bit packed for want of a better word. It's like I take a, an organic spongy thing and I just compact it a little bit by releasing gravity through it. This densens it a little bit so everything is connected and this means I can then release a wave through that, that structure. 
So then the wave is released through the inside of the, the torso um, and it moves from the, the hands to the, to the feet. Uh, sorry, the other way around. <laughs> it moves from the feet to the, to the hands. I suppose you say hands to the feet if you're receiving force, but generally from the feet to the hands. Now for the force to move that way, it doesn't move through the back, not in Bagua, not, uh, it doesn't move through the spine, not in Bagua, it moves through the inside of the torso. So the compression of the torso and the twisting of the torso, which is around the stabilized spine, is what lines everything up so that power can come through. And you can already see, if you watch people do Bagua, I mean, there's only one kind of power, one kind of force, you know, like I say, there's other ways to do it. But if you watch people practice Bagua, you can always tell, are they doing it internally or externally? by the way that they are lining up and stabilizing the spine. If they're twisting the spine, you know that actually the power is going the wrong way. Um, it's emphasized on the back, so they're going to have to use leverage to send that power through. If they are stabilizing the spine and rotating everything around that sort of anchorage point of the spine, then you know that they're lining up the body in the right way to move the gin through the inside of the torso. This is why often with Bagua, it's quite complex to get everything established correctly. You really need someone to get their hands on you and kind of show you how to form the body, the body shape. So this is the basis of, of Bagua's body shape to me. Uh, next one with Bagua, some principles, just to show you how different it is from some other martial arts. Um, it doesn't use a percussive force or momentum particularly. I mean, you could, sometimes it can because it's something your body can do, so it can do it. But as a style, it doesn't really focus on that or it shouldn't do. So what I see is a lot of people sort of winding their waist and, and spinning it, and they kind of use their arm like it's a baseball bat or something. And this is what I mean by sort of centrifugal power around that middle. Now, I can see why people would think centrifugal force is used, because you're turning your body, um, essentially. And you see people doing bagua very, very fast, and they whip it around. Um, but actually, to me, that's the wrong power. That's like a very basic kind of power that's used in every system to a certain force, centrifugal force, spinning to, to whip that arm in. And I even see um, high-level Bagua uh, heads of traditions using this to kind of, along with my least favorite application from any Chinese martial art, which is tripping people over. Um, I don't think that's very clever. You see people, and they always have applications where they stand behind them and tripping over with one arm. It's a really silly application. It's, it's just, there's, there's a lot more interesting things you can do. But uh, what they do is when they, they do this sort of spin, as you see them again, sort of windmilling their arms and knocking people over. Bagua doesn't work like that, or shouldn't do. Um, it should work again on release and the principle of uh, developing a jin through the aspect of song by releasing so that everything stretches from the inside to come, to come out. So often you see people moving very, very fast in Bagua, coiling the body up and uncoiling the body as fast as they can. And, and this is how I was taught originally when I was younger. Um, but uh, essentially that's not correct because it doesn't knit the body together in the right way. For a long time, Bagua should be quite slow, a bit like Tai Chi, uh, just till everything establishes itself and knits together. And then centrifugal force is not needed. It has the same internal forces, same kind of internal emphasis as Tai Chi. So centrifugal force is not used. <clears throat> the next one for Bagua. Bagua does not root. Uh, this is another thing that um, uh, confuses people. And by root, I don't mean like sinking a root or anything. I mean like by bracing uh, or, or taking that force. So your legs are immovable. Your body is immovable. Bagua doesn't work that way. You could argue that almost every martial art does root to a certain extent, especially if it uses a front stance, um, you know, like a, a bow stance or something like this, where the front leg is bent and the back leg is is straight or straighter. So a lot of Shaolin uses that, and most martial arts, so that when they hit something, there's a certain degree of stability behind uh, the point of contact, so that your structure has some 
ability to, to withstand pressure and take it. But Bagua doesn't use that. And this is why Bagua is so difficult. Bagua is known as like one of the most complicated arts. I think the saying, I probably got it wrong, but it's something like martial artists do Bagua to find out how bad their Kung Fu is, I think is this, something like that, the saying. I might have had that wrong, but basically the idea is people come along and they've got experience elsewhere and then they find Bagua really hard because it reverses all of the rules. And, and one of those is that Bagua does not brace, does not root. So if you look at the circle walking, when people are walking around, I see people trying to root on every step, root on every step. They shouldn't root on every step, they should release on every step. It's the opposite principle. So there's, a, there's a concept in Tai Chi that's quite akin to this, quite similar, uh, where they say that beginners have two legs, Intermediate has one leg, advanced have no legs, um, which is obviously not literal. We don't remove your legs as you train. But what it means is when you start, your power is in two legs. And then gradually what happens is you get better in intermediate, you move on to one leg. So what I mean by this is you still have a stance, but your power is only being sent up and down through one leg. And normally it's the front leg in Tai Chi. And if you can do this, your power moving up and down mostly through the front leg, you're at a very advanced stage of Tai Chi. That's pretty good. Especially this is especially true of the Yang and Wu styles. It means your back leg is not used. So even when receiving force, your back leg is not taking that force through to the ground. So you're not, you're not bracing, you're not rooting. It means you have to use something else. You have to be able to nullify their power at the point of contact so that it doesn't enter the body. Then the advanced practitioner doesn't use any legs. They are legless, which doesn't mean drunk like it does in England, but legless means you don't use any, any of the power through the legs. It's not used. And that might sound weird to someone who studies um, natural body mechanics or something. And I remember when I first heard it, I thought it was strange. But once you, you train a bit deeper and you go there, you understand, oh, the legs don't need to be used. There's no need to brace. The force doesn't come in because I don't let the force land on me. And this is one of the key qualities the internal martial arts of Tai Chi, like develop at a higher stage. Not many people manage no legs. It's quite hard. You know, it's, it's a, a, a lot of years development and you have to train in a very specific way and not many people get there to be perfectly honest. But in Bagua, it's even harder because they start there. <laughs> they don't even start with two legs. They don't even start with one leg. It's like Tai Chi has a, a systematic step of stages to get to this advanced stage where the power is not traveling through the legs. Bagua just doesn't bother. It starts there. It starts at no legs. So that when you're walking around in a circle, the legs aren't delivering the power. The legs aren't receiving power. But it also doesn't means you don't dodge either. This is the other thing. So what people think is, um, okay, Bagua doesn't root. That's because it dodges, it uses subterfuge footwork. It's not true either, actually. Um, it's, it works by lining up the body and, and establishing the internal qualities in such a way that at the point of contact, no pressure from the other person gets into the body, so there's nothing to brace against. So the invisibility of Bagua that you sometimes here spoken about or written about it's not invisible because you can disappear and reappear behind someone or, or something like this like i've seen written as well it's not that actually it's invisible to the other person's force so tai chi have something called pung um, which essentially floats the other person's power when they touch you um, but that's a that's a conversation for another time but Bagua has something very, very similar. It's almost pung, but it's developed in a different way. But in the same way, when someone touches you, their power doesn't enter the body. It's like it's dispersed over the structure and doesn't enter into your form. Well, this is what you're trying to achieve, so that there's no need for it to go through your body to the ground or, or, or whatever. So you don't brace, you don't root. So this creates a very agile sort of um, ability to move freely on contact with someone. Because if you've ever done, again, grappling or something, you'll know that if you, if you wrestle with someone and they're putting force on you, 
you, you can move your feet, but of course you've got to move them very cleverly because the power is coming into your body. Um, and Bhagwa tries to avoid that, that, that principle. Sometimes when they do the palm changes, you'll see they have stances. Stances suggest rooting, suggest bracing. But Bhagwa stances are very um, specific. They're actually designed to differentiate uh, the power up and down in the legs via the use of the choir, rather than being sort of uh, functional uh, grappling stances in the majority of cases. There's a couple of exceptions, but it, it's, you know, it's very clever, very technical how Bhagwa, Bhagwa works. Next one, Bhagwa does not use the hips. Same as Tai Chi, does not use the hips. Now, I, when I say don't use, that doesn't mean that the hips don't move. They do move, of course, because you move your body, so the hips move. But what I mean is that hips are not the, the origin point of your power. I want to make that clear, because I've said that before, the hips, you don't use your hips. And then the comments people come up, of course you do, because it's part of your body. And yeah, okay, I understand. But what I mean is your power does not originate from the, from the hips. We don't turn the hips. We don't turn the pelvis. As soon as you turn the hips or turn the pelvis within any martial art, because the way the muscle is structured and the body is structured, you're essentially stuck with centrifugal percussive um, power. That's what, you, that's what you have. You don't have anything else just because of the way the power works. So it's, it's very, very good for throwing a punch, a hook punch, or, or even a hip throw, or, or, or a chop, or something like that, or, or whatever. But it's not good for gin. It stops the gin from flowing. If you use your hips, the gin, the specific gin that comes from the internal arts, does not come through. Instead, we use the qua, which is the inside joint. And, and I've done lots of talking about the qua elsewhere, uh, all over the place. I'm sure you find me talking about the qua. But if people ask what's the definition of the qua, and they say the inguinal crease, they say the, the bit where the psoas muscle comes, I don't know. They come up with technical names, and then have Latin names of that, and this and that. It's really easy. It's bikini line. That's what it means. It's, if you break down the Chinese character, it shows a bikini. And that, no, it's not true. But it, essentially, it's just a bikini line. It's that area of your body. So whatever muscles are being used, who cares? Like, it really doesn't matter. Don't get overly cerebral about it. Just bring your focal point down to that area of your body and try to turn and function from here. And at first, it doesn't feel much different. So what happens is people try it, and they go, well, it feels the same. That's because you need to give it more than five minutes. <clears throat> but if you do it for a while, your muscle usage will change. It's like a different kinetic chain, a different connected bunch of muscles gets used. Um, and you find that the body functions very, very differently. And the power comes off of the hips. And as soon as I start moving the quad, uh, then the power starts being able, the gin starts to be expressed through the torso. Uh, and this enables you to not, what they call double weight. Okay, it starts differentiating the power of yin and yang in, in the legs, up and down in the legs. The choir is vitally important for that. If you move from your hips, you cannot single weight, unless you are very, very advanced, because there's always an exception to the rule, isn't there? But generally, you cannot single weight. You will always double weight, if you know what that phrase means. If you move from the choir, you can single weight. If you move from the choir, it's very difficult to double weight, actually. It's very difficult because of the way that the choir is um, structured. Okay. So this is an important principle in, um, in Bagua, to use that. So we, we, we move from the choir. We don't root. We don't brace. We don't anchor the legs. Um, we, don't, uh, use, we don't twist the spine. That's not used in Bagua. We don't use centrifugal forces. These are key... Uh, principles or, or, or key things you don't do in order to make Bagua work, which in my opinion, if you're learning an internal martial art, because they're kind of complicated, it's almost more important to learn what you don't do than what you do do, you know, to, because you can eradicate all those errors and what's left um, is generally, generally correct. So in Bagua, there was some other principles um, in Bagua. 
we don't spin the body as many times as we possibly can. Um, and you, you'll see this, there's mukur hiding flower in the leaves, and it's where they turn and the arms coil. Um, and you'll see people try to get as far around as they possibly can, or even on um, the turning millstone palm or, or green dragon, it's black dragon, green dragon, extends its claws, the names don't matter. People will turn as far as they can around to the back. That's not correct. I think, and this is going to sound really weird, people overemphasize circles in their bagua. Um, and I'm aware that that's even a weird phrase if you're a Bagua practitioner. But what I mean by that is there are circles in Bagua. Of course there are. The very fact you're twisting your body is doing that. But sometimes people put too many in. You know, it's like they're putting circles in for the sake of putting circles in. And that's not, um, that's not helpful. That just becomes pointlessly flamboyant. Every single twist you put into the body must have a function. And, and Bagua is all about twisting and turning to uh, stabilize the tissues into a particular shape and line up the body in a certain way. But we don't add them if there's no purpose. So one example of this is when people try to twist their body as far as they can around to the back, as if sort of by wringing out the body that makes them stronger. Um, it's not true. So if you have, you think of your power like this. I know I'm coming to this very martially. Um, I'll change it a minute and talk about the energetics of Bagua, because I know some people are more interested in that. But, but martial arts are, martial principles are easier to talk about because it's very sort of mechanical, very rudimentary, and you can kind of envisage how another person would interact with you. So it's very easy to get the idea of these principles. So martial arts are an easy analogy for me. So if you, got, if you take my two hands, are the hips, hips here, hips here, and I've already said we don't turn from the hips, but you still have hips. And then above these, you've got two more spheres. These are the shoulders. So you've got the two spheres of the shoulders and the two spheres of the hips. And what happens is the two spheres of the shoulders have to sit onto the, onto the hips so that they relate to each other. So when I drop the shoulders towards the hips, this sets up a density within the body. And this is why you settle your shoulders um, in internal martial arts, because I lift them, you actually disconnect because nothing is, nothing is compressed is the wrong way. It is compressed, but it's not a bad compression. It's not compressed down to sort of pack the density of the torso correctly. Now, in order for the, this density to, to exist, there must be a relationship between the shoulders and the hips. And what starts to happen after a while is you can feel it. It's like everything starts to knit together. It's like the inside of your torso starts to knit together. And it gets very, very dense. And the, and the torso kind of feels like it has a thickness to it. It's not size, but it, you just feel it. And this is because the way that the body is organizing itself because of the relationship of the, the shoulders and the, and the hips. Now, if I take the pelvis, and this is the ribcage, and I twist it like this, so that the pelvis is facing this way, the, the, the rib cage is facing this way. The shoulders are not above the hips. So what happens is now when the weight of the shoulders comes down, it doesn't compress into the hip joints. And every time I step, the hips will actually press up a little bit, um, and this won't press into the shoulders. So now they're no longer communicating. And as soon as they no longer communicate, then power can't be sent through the torso. And this is what people are doing when they, when they, they twist their bodies. Now, if I sink the shoulder down to the, the hips, and they communicate, I have, say this is these communicate, I probably have like this much, I can move them away from each other and they can still communicate. This is too much. So I can turn my rib cage a little bit and they can still communicate, but only slightly. Now, in order to know that, uh, how much you can twist them, which for beginners isn't very much, you, you either have to have an amazing body awareness or you have to have somebody put pressure on you. And then they will know, they'll show you. And, and what you need is someone to push on the arm and you'll see how your power sort of kicks back into the hip and sort of knocks you over because it's going the wrong way. So what you do in Bagua is you twist ever so subtly at first, ever such a tiny twist. 
um, so that the two knit together. And then only when they're knitted together, you sort of take it a bit further and then knit them together, and then a bit further and knit them together, and a bit further and knit them together. So it's very gradually done. So the twist is increased and increased and increased for the body. But even then, there's a point you can't go past. Because if you go too far, if it turns into like flexibility and mobility instead of connection and twist, then the power disappears. And, and I think, and again, only my opinions from my experiences of practicing and, and also partnering up with people of, of other styles and things, is that often they, they lose the power and they lose that connection because they haven't understood that principle. They're just trying to get as sort of flexible as they can, um, which they, they shouldn't do. They shouldn't do. So the last one, a last principle that I think is important as well, is you don't walk low. Don't walk low. I see this so many times, and, and you see it in, I've even seen books by what I would consider very logical people then encouraging people to walk very, very low, which I think is incorrect. So they talk about um, stepping very low to the ground. So I've even seen writers say your butt level with the knee, so your thigh is horizontal. I mean, that's, that's pretty low. People will circle walking like this, and there's legends of them walking under a table, you know, with a table above their, their head and stuff like that, which would be an odd table. Was that like a standing table in a bar? I'm not sure, but... So these kind of these kind of things, and don't do it. It's a really bad idea. The argument is, it's say they, they say it's for strengthening the legs. Well, that's true. It will strengthen your legs, um, but it'll also wreck your knees. It'll trash them. Uh, and some people say, no, 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 my knees are okay because I build all this power around it. Yeah, maybe, but you're not the majority of people. Um, and also, that kind of strengthening that builds on the legs is a little bit stagnant anyway. It's not kind of what we want for the internal arts. It's more of an external arts principle. Now, I'm never against people strengthening their legs. Perfect. Strong legs are healthy legs. But do it some other way. Do it conventional leg strengthening way. Why spend all that time walking around in a circle really low? Just uh, go to a gym. Do some leg things. Do some squats. I don't know. Go for a walk up a hill. Go for a hike. Ride a bike. Something on, a, on the wrong gear. That'll get your legs strong or something like that. Not low circle walking. It will, it will trash the joints and trash the knees. There are exceptions because some people are outliers. And what happens is those outliers go, it won't trash your knees, it will trash your knees. And then they say, it won't trash your knees if you do it technically correct, it will still trash your knees. Like, I went to, I shouldn't tell tales, I won't tell tales. I'll tell them one tale. Should I tell tales? I'll tell one tale. Okay. I went to one Bagua school, which was actually the, the lineage head, like, you know, the, I won't say what style it was, but it was a lineage holder's school, you know, and it's like the top of the tradition. And I went there and I paid a lot of money for the classes. And I had to walk very, very low. Now, my legs are quite strong and my knees are okay and I'm very flexible, so I could do it. I could walk very low to the ground. I felt a bit of a plonker, to be perfectly honest, walking like that. But uh, I walked around uh, like so, and, and afterwards I, I said to them, um, how do you, because there was very little instruction, it's just walk low, how do you do this to avoid hurting the knees, you know, is it, if you have a specific alignment or something? And the, and the head of the tradition actually rolled out their trousers, and they had scars under the knees from the operations they'd had. I don't know what they'd had done, like reattached a patella tendon, I don't know what they'd done, but they'd had loads of scars. And then the senior students lifted up their trousers, and they also had scars on the knees. And it also it became like a sort of badge of honor, the, the, <laughs> the amount of operations they'd had on their, their knees, which to me suggests that they're doing something wrong for their knees. Um, so uh, you shouldn't walk low. Walking low will build an external kind of power, but internal force is not based upon this. Now, it always gets me in hot, hot water, this kind of thing, because people get very precious about martial arts, is you shouldn't walk um, low in Bagua, 
you should walk quite high, quite comfortable, quite natural to let the power through. But I want to reiterate, I am not saying that you don't need strong legs. I just don't believe that walking low to the ground is the best way to build that leg strength. Go build it somewhere else and then walk in a sensible fashion. So don't walk low to the ground. Um, I think it's a bad idea. So Bagua, uh, essentially based on all these kind of principles. Oh, let's do one more, one more, one more um, key principle of, of Bagua Jiang. Uh, we don't use the lower Dantian in Bagua Jiang in the same way that we do in Tai Chi. It's not like uh, filling it through density and, or anything like this. Uh, Bagua does talk about the Dantian because it's an internal martial art. They discuss it in the same way. But actually, the Dantian turns from higher up. Uh, the, sorry, the body in Bagua Jiang turns from higher up. It turns from a, around the region of the, the diaphragm, essentially, the solar plexus diaphragm height. So what happens in, in Taiji is the lower Dantian moves, and that leads the Kwa, uh, as you, you make your shapes in, in majority systems. And in Bagua, it's actually the diaphragm that leads and turns and twists. So what I do is I take conscious control by soaking the mind into the diaphragm, and the diaphragm region solar plexus twists and rearranges my body. And that central point aligns everything up behind it, and it creates a very, very different power. And I've seen people mistakenly not knowing this and trying to use the lower Dantian uh, to, to make the shapes, but essentially that's like, um, that's like Tai Chi. That's like a beginner's Tai Chi. It's not how Bagua works. In Tai Chi, later stages, they actually move up. The lower Dantian is not used so much. The diaphragm, solar plexus region gets used more. And again, Bagua starts from that point, or should do. It's almost like Bagua just doesn't have the foundation work that Tai Chi does, like it's lacking something almost. It's almost lacking the introductory level work. It goes straight to the advanced level work. The, the, the advantage of that is it's very interesting. If you like a challenge, very complex way of using your body. The disadvantage of it is that if people haven't done the foundation work, it can be quite difficult. Um, and also people have misunderstood it. And, and when people misunderstand this, they'll overlay things they already know into Bagua to sort of fill in the blanks. And they create something that's not, not really Bagua anymore because those principles have kind of disappeared. So those are the only body ones I'll focus on. Those are some key bodywork principles. I apologize and if that's a bit jargony or whatever. I'm aware that this episode is probably only relevant to people who do, do Bagua, um, perhaps, but um, you know, I was asked for it, so here we go. So in Bagua, there's the other side of it as well, isn't there? There's a curious thing that it's not just a, a martial system. It is very much an internal art, you know, like a, um, you know, a Neigong uh, system as well, meaning that ultimately it's about the building of qi and the opening of the channels um, and the integration of yin and yang energy within the body. If it's a form of Neigong, that's what it's trying to do. And it, it's funny that um, people will talk about Neigong and then they talk about, actually, people talk about Neigong and then they talk about martial art, but they don't really talk about martial arts, do they? What they actually talk about is martial. You very rarely hear anyone emphasize the art <laughs> so always what you get is people go, how do we make our martial arts more martial? How do we put the martial back into martial arts? You never hear anyone say, how do I put the art back into martial art? Like, no one ever says that because the assumption is that martial arts are always artistic. I don't think they are how a lot of people are doing it. Because art to me, maybe my definition's wrong, maybe my definition's out, but art to me is a form of expression, um, artistic expression from the, the inside to the outside to express the being in what you're doing. Um, and a lot of people are so technical, sometimes technically incorrect, sometimes technically correct, but the art is gone, the expression is gone uh, a little bit. So that must always also be there. And Bagua very much is quite an expressive, uh, expressive art. Uh, that's a di 
digression, I apologize. But the Nagong component in Bagua is um, very important as, as well, very, very important. So Bagua really has uh, two aspects to it. We can call the Shantian and the Hotian aspect, or the pre-heaven, post-heaven. Sometimes they pre-natal, post-natal, but the kind of before and after uh, birth, or before and after heaven stages of training. The pre-heaven, the Shantian, Essentially, most of the Nagong is there. So most of the energetic work, most of the channel opening work is there. The post-heaven, the Hotian, um, which is the palm changes, there's actually not much Nagong there, not really. It's mostly about body development as, a, as anything else. So the Shantian, the pre-heaven, contains most of the Nagong. Now, it's not as clear-cut as that, but in the forms or the body work, you have two sorts generally in Bagua. You have static palms that are held while someone's walking in a circle because it's Bagua, meaning eight, there's normally eight of them, but some stars have more. So you walk in a, a circle holding eight postures. This is where most of the Neigong is in Bhagwajan. This is the Chantian. The, the Hotian, the postnatal, um, is the palm changes, the single palm change, the double palm changes, the short sequences. Most of the energetics are contained in the static palm walking. Doesn't mean they're not in the other thing too, but you learn them in the static palm walking and they tra that transfers over into the palm changes. So you don't really have to worry about it in the palm change, you do it in the static palms. Now the static palms are designed to um, correspond to the gua, the hex, uh, the three trigrams, I apologize. I always get tri and hex mixed up, which is a bit worrying. The trigrams, which are eight symbols from the I Ching that represent um, the interchanges of yin and yang. They are chan and kun and can, kun, uh, qian, kun, can, li, and so on and so on. And the heaven, earth, fire, water, lake, wind, shun, jian, mountain, and Lake, I think, yeah. So these, these eight symbols um, that come from the classic of change discuss different ways yin and yang interact within the body. And each of the palm static postures corresponds uh, to one of these gua. So there'll be a, the heaven position and the earth position and so on and so on. Um, and what each of these positions are designed to do is to line up the body and cause the, using their jargon, chi and channels to open up in a certain way. Now, the channels that open in Bagua are not the organ meridians. So they're not the lung, the large intestine, stomach, spleen, gallbladder, bladder, and so on and so on that you see in Chinese medicine. I want to make that really clear that I don't believe that's the case because there's, there's too many books that say you do this to open the, the, the heart channel and this is to open the lung channel and you twist your body so you twist the bladder and the stomach channel. Not how it works. Definitely not. The channels that they're talking about are more... Um, body zones and regions and more to do with something about how we twist the tissues to conduct the power through. If you hold your arm like this, it's not going to open the heart channel. It's not really what it's about. Um, it's about something much, much deeper. That's an overlay of Chinese medicine theory into Bagua that's not quite correct. When the positions are used in Bagua, the static positions, what they do is they bring uh, energy into the body. I know that's a really crass term, but essentially that's true. Now, yin energy uh, essentially is formed um, essentially of like a field. It's the organizing energy. They say yin is the energy of form. So what happens is a, a kind of magnetism builds inside the body. And a lot of people will feel this quite early. It's because you feel like you're being pushed or pulled in and out of the center of the circle or something is getting dense or something is going up or down. These kind of physical experiences of weight change and pressure change is a kind of magnetism that builds um, inside the body. Some people don't believe in this, um, but which I understand. Why would you? I mean, why would you not, actually? I mean, to be perfectly honest, 
uh, I guess I was always neutral on it when I was told it before I'd experienced it. I didn't, um, I didn't have a belief either way. I didn't really care. You know, I was like, all right, that's what I got to do. Some people are very, very fixed, and they don't, you know, they need evidence or something. I guess that wasn't really me, but I get, I'm not sure. I wouldn't even say I kept an open mind. I kept an irrelevant mind. I didn't care. You know, I was just doing the art. But gradually, what happens is the infield builds, um, and this is a kind of magnetism inside the body. And, th and this kind of force, any of the forces that change the shape of your body from inside, you feel things pulling and shifting. This is to do with yin. Yang energy um, is essentially a form of almost like electrical energy. It feels like that. It so it flows in lines. You feel it move through the nervous system. Yin energy doesn't move in the nervous system. Yang energy moves in the nervous system. Um, so it, feel, it feels like quite tingly on the hands or, or, or static or, or sometimes electrical charges, shocks that come across the hands. In extreme cases, when people you build the yin and yang chi very, very strong, they can do very, very impressive things with, with it, but that's more like pure Neigong. It doesn't really happen in Bagua so much more in Neigong training, alchemical Neigong training. But these two forces are built from the two key positions. Now, if you look at um, the yin position, normally the hands are down. Sometimes you see it pressing down towards the ground, but the system I use is pressing towards just above the lower Dantian, uh, because this is a very strong place for building the yin field, because of a sphere of chi will build in this area. The yang palm is about being open, and, and the palms facing up to heaven. Palms facing up to heaven doesn't really matter. It could be palms down, it could be palms here. More importantly, what you're doing is you're opening the joint sound and, and stretching it so that you're opening the nervous system, which will lead to a sort of linear conduction of energy through the body, which is the yang aspect. So these two original forces of only yin chi and yang chi in this way, dantian, and, and opening and stretching the nerves out. As you walk the circle and, and breathe and learn to release properly and go through a series of internal processes that are probably a little bit long-winded for me to include in a podcast, but you have all of the internal mechanisms involved, it generates more of this yin and yang energy uh, within the body, more electricity, more, more biomagnetism. And then what you have is the further palms, the other six are a mix of yin and yang. They're not pure yang like heaven, they're not pure yin like earth, they're a mix of them. What they start to do is they start to play with the interaction between these two forces on the inside of the body. This produces a series of phenomena that opens the channels. It is very tangible to feel. And again, not the organ meridians, but the regions of the body that, it, that it's trying to, trying to open. Each of these ways that yin and yang mix are then linked to the gua, linked to the hexagram, to give you eight main ways that yin and yang start to interact with each other. So for example, if yang chi is sent very, very strongly to the dantian, it builds up a kind of pressure, creates like a discharge, and it almost feels like your nerve system is quite erratic. It's like something quite sputtery coming out from inside. And they link this to the, the thunder hexagram thunder symbol, which is yang on the bottom, and two yin symbols, uh, which represents the sudden sparking or rising of yang. And, and you, can, you could liken each of the eight I Ching symbols, I Ching, each of the, the gua, the, the trigrams, to one of these key ways in which the yin and yang energies interact inside. So a lot of the um, neigong in circle walking is based upon this, uh, to build this. They build the qi, build these two forces inside, not to discharge it in magical ways or anything like this, but primarily because when these two forces interact, they, they cause the inside of the body to mobilize and they wake up the force on the inside. They wake up the soft tissues. They create the internal, um, internal body. But in order for people to be able to do that, they have to get these yin and yang qi started, and some people miss out on that a little bit. If we make this more esoteric, um, for those of you who want to get a bit hippie-ish. Now, as a, as a um, sort of 
disclaimer before I talk about this. There's no need to have this belief system to do Bagua. Some people do Bagua just because they want to um, do it because it's fun, no problem. Some people want to do it for exercise and that's cool and some people want to do it for the grappling because there's lots of cool grappling in Bagua, especially from Rushu, the partner work. But some people um, want to study the more esoteric side of it and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's cool. I don't think people should dismiss the people who are interested in the esoteric stuff. I, I, I think it's, um, it's a valid study. And Bagua very much um, leads to that. But at the same time, you don't have to study Bagua on this level. It's not needed. So Bagua theory at this stage with the circle walking is linked to the theory of the, of the I Ching, linked to the theory of change. Now, when people study the I Ching, the classic of change, what you encounter is a book full of 64 um, hexagrams, 64, 64 sacred symbols that have commentary on them. And what they do is largely use for divination is the idea. Now, divination already sounds a bit out there, sounds a little bit crazy, and, and fair enough, I'm not here to convince anyone of any belief system. But I think that sometimes maybe people have looked at the idea of divination wrong, because divination suggests telling the, the future, telling people's fortunes. But that's not what actually what the I Ching is about for me. The I Ching is more about insight to the current nature of change in any given moment. So to understand the I Ching a little bit, um, if we look at that, we can understand that to, to the Taoists or to the people who developed the I Ching, maybe they didn't call themselves Taoists at this stage, but this is what they evolved into. Their view was that nothing actually happened randomly. Um, everything happened according to the rule of causation. So even though something might appear random, um, actually it's just a causation chain that's too complex for you to see. Luck is a causation chain that's too complex for you to see. Uh, chaos is a causation chain that's too complex for you to see. And often it appears chaotic or it appears lucky or it appears random because actually you don't have any insight to how you have set up the causes that lead to that moment. That's essentially what we're talking about. So if you want to understand that on a really simple level, Say you went around your day completely unaware of what you said and what you did and what you thought and how you acted and you walked into lampposts and you bumped into people and you offended them accidentally without any idea you were doing it just because you're a blunt idiot who doesn't know what they're saying. Sounds a bit like me, actually. If you were completely unaware of all of those things, what would happen is you would set up a series of causations around you. People would get annoyed. People would see you as clumsy, get out of the way, make you nervous. Like, all of these causations would be taking place and you wouldn't be aware. And then what would happen is, is people react to you in a certain way and their reactions, the things that happen around you, would all of a sudden appear random. Why is that happening? Why are people talking about it? And it's because you're unaware of your, your things that you're putting out. Now, that's an obvious example, right? It sounds a bit basic. But then the more aware you become of your actions, the less this sort of random, unlucky or lucky chaos you cause around you. So you develop more insight. And you'll see this in traditions that place an importance upon mindfulness. Um, this is what they're trying to, one of what they're trying to do is become more aware of what they're doing, more aware of the causations you're establishing for yourself so that more luck and fate and, and randomness and chaos starts to disappear for you and things start to appear more ordered because you understand how you are the center of, of the causations around you. doesn't mean that you're not affected by causation that's come from elsewhere, but a large percentage of your causation is taken care of because you're suddenly more aware, you're more mindful. Now, the I Ching is a way of enabling uh, you to develop that awareness of the causation within a present moment using a ritualized practice. So the early, earliest ways divinators would do this in ancient China, I believe, would, would be to throw bones into a fire, chicken bones or 
I don't know, something, dinosaur bones, probably not dinosaur bones, but you know what I mean, they throw something in a fire, and they would look at the way it split, the cracks, because obviously they, they crack when they get hot and it looks random, but it's not random, it's a causation that's taking place, um, that, that they would then read. Now, this is where it gets a little bit esoteric, a bit woo-woo for many people, is the idea is that at any given moment, within a, a section of time, there is an interaction taking place between heaven and earth, between yin and yang. Um, and everything is to do with the way yin and yin and yang interact with each other. And we are sat between those two places. Now, the yin and yang of us is between essentially our, our higher consciousness and our lower purpose or our, our body and our mind. Um, it's between ourselves and the world around us. It's also between our body and the way it interacts with the, uh, the cosmos in the case of astrology or the way that our body interacts with the world in the case of feng shui um, or our mind interacts with the world in case of feng shui. So we have all these interactions taking place. And all of these become a form of chi, a form of energy. And I don't mean like a magical liquid energy that can be shot out of your fingertips or something. I mean just um, a transformation that's taking place according to these causations that, that surround us. Now, according to I Ching theory, there were 64 main ways that this yin and yang could interact with each other, which sounds very odd. I know it's very mathematically organized. And it's this kind of thing that always makes me laugh when people say spirituality is very vague, there's no definition, uh, Chinese arts are very nonspecific. Well, actually, I mean, if you're going to say the Chinese arts are very nonspecific, you've got to then try and figure out, well, how come the Chinese then had 64 very, very specific ways that yin and yang could interact at any one given moment to generate the qi, the energy of an, outfold, of an unfolding outcome? I would say that a, a nation, a culture that listed things that, that sort of <laughs> exactly in 64 ways probably weren't into the woolly or the vague. They were very, very specific about, about what they were doing. So, when we talking about that, yes. Because the idea was if somebody could put themselves into a ritualistic mindset, okay, which is essentially to absorb yourself into a process to such an extent um, that the outside world would fade away, the mind would fade away, just kind of like repeating a mantra or counting something or repeating a word or focusing on something till everything else fades away. A ritual is another way of doing this. It's like a way you can use samadhi, mental absorption and concentration to access the correct state uh, so that you are absorbed into the randomness, the chaos that's taking place at that moment. This is why they use yara stalks. If you've ever used yara stalks within I Ching, what they do is they cast the stalks and they have a, a very complicated, um, it's, it's kind of, com it is complicated when you don't know it. Once you get used to it, it's easy. Casting the iris stalks to create a, a six-line hexagram. Now, people think it's a kind of, don't use the coins, by the way. The coins don't have the same kind of ritualistic energy to them. If you, if you use the coins for the I Ching, I would suggest throwing them away um, and, and learn the iris stalks. And sometimes people say, well, they're both physical each other. Actually, the ritualistic aspect of the, of the Yarostalks is much better. It's a lot more involved, and you're more likely to enter the right mind state with the Yarostalks. Don't use the online hexagram generators as an app. I think people have on their phone where they go hexagram of the day. Don't do that. You need the ritual. Because the idea is when everything else fades away, you're absorbed into that moment, and then you can access the randomness that takes place. So the result of the way that the I Ching um, creates a reading, the result of the way that the Aristotle show you, show you a hexagram is they show you how yin and yang is interacting at that particular moment. So that doesn't, that's not divination. That's not future telling. That's not, that's not actually saying you're going to meet a tall, dark, handsome stranger and have four kids and a Lamborghini. It's not that kind of thing. Um, it's more that it shows you how yin and yang are acting, interacting at that moment 
which shows you the causations that are taking place right now. Now that causation can be to do with what you're doing, or it can be to do with other people, or whatever, but it gives you an insight to causations. And then what happens is you practice long enough with the I Ching, and you become au fait, you become comfortable with the way yin and yang can interact, you have a conceptual model to understand it, and it develops a higher degree of causation understanding. Um, and this is largely what the I Ching does. So if you wanted to break down in a very simplest term, what does the I Ching do? It's to build wisdom. That's it. It's to build wisdom. It's to help you become wise. It's not to help you become intelligent, because intelligence is largely, to me, the memorization of information, to be clever, to recall things. Wisdom is not the same. Wisdom can be with intelligence, or it can be separate from intelligence. And wisdom, to me, is to understand the unfolding of something, to see the bigger picture of, of the cause and effect of how something has taken place, based upon your experience, yes, but also based upon an insight into the way that causation happens. Well, this is how wisdom is, is viewed within the Eastern arts, in my opinion, this is how they, they discuss it. So the I Ching is a wisdom builder. So you have this little, little method to do it with the, with the, with the Yara stalks, um, and if you practice it for a long time, it's amazing that even if you don't like focus why, like I've seen people try to mathematically work out the secret of the I Ching. There's so many books on that. Well, yeah, you get this reading because 2 to the power of 6 combined with 64 times 128 will mean statistically this is more likely. Forget all that. As soon as you start to analyze the tool, it, it breaks down. It's kind of like if you become a filmmaker. I know some, some of my friends who are filmmakers. You can't watch a film with them. You sit down and you watch a movie and you're like, whoa, look at that special effect. And they're like, well, yeah, but the lighting's done like this and the green screen and maybe the timing was... You know, and, the, and they've analyzed it to the point where there's no joy involved in it anymore. They've dissected the movie to the point that the movie is no longer watchable. And people will do that with the I Ching. Once you dissect the tool mathematically of the I Ching, as fascinating as it might be for a, a nerd, but the more you break it down, the more you analyze it, the I Ching no longer exists. It's like the tool is broken. It's not developing wisdom anymore. Now it's building intelligence. That's the wrong thing, okay? We don't want it to build intelligence. We have other things for intelligence. We have Sudoku, or however you say it. We can use that for intelligence, maybe, or reading a book. But, the, but we don't have many tools for wisdom, um, and the I Ching is one of those. So I think if we have a tool for wisdom, developing an insight into causation chains, we should keep it as that, and, and venerate it for the amazing tool that it possibly is. With regards to the I Ching, though, don't take my word on it. Go and try it. Even if you're a huge skeptic, I mean, this is not naturally my area. Divination, what? But give it a go. And, and explore it for a while and, and try it. And, and if you really get into it, you'd be surprised. It's like you don't even know why. You don't understand how, but you just become more insightful into the way that things unfold for you. And that's one of the great beauties of the I Ching. Now, how does this link to Bagua? Well, Bagua Zhang, doesn't really use the 64 hexagrams. Now, there are forms created that are based on 64 palms or 64 changes. They came a bit later. What, they, what Bagua is based on is the eight gua, the eight trigrams originally. So with the eight Shantian practices, what they do is they enable you to understand how yin and yang energies are interacting inside the body. How is the essentially biomagnetism and the bioelectricity interfacing within the middle of your body and how is this creating change, creating change of the body's function, of the body's sensation, even of your mind. How is this being, in being controlled or, or governed by this energy inside? This gives you insight to yin and yang inside you, but it doesn't give you insight to the yin and yang in the on the environment. It's what's taking place on the inside of your body. 
Now, when you use the Jaroslavs, what it then means is you have a somatic, tangible experience of how yin and yang interfaces inside your body. It means you understand the hexagrams, because ultimately then when you look at the readings of the I Ching, which creates a six-symbol uh, hexagram, what you understand is how those two, eight, those two symbols of the eight gua are interacting, because every hexagram, every one of the 84, 64 symbols, I'm not very good with numbers, you can tell, is comprised of two of the eight main trigrams interacting with each other. And sometimes when people read the, the I Ching at the beginning, you rely on the text. After a while, you know what they mean because you know that the, the symbol itself shows you how the, the energy is interacting, how are yin and interfacing. I don't need the reading anymore. I know that the interface of earth on top, kun, and I don't know, jian, thunder on the bottom, uh, creates um, ultimately hexagram 19. Uh, the approach which symbols nourishment rising uh, from the inside of the body and the, uh, and the nourishment and it shows that something is potentially going to be approaching in the near future um, and it shows that the yang chi is starting to build and starting to move. Now I will understand that from the symbol itself <coughs> but partially I also know that experientially from the inside of my body because I've done enough of the eight uh, walking practices of Shantian to actually have experienced that energy moving on inside of the body. I know that when that thunder energy moves, which means the Yang Chi essentially is rising up in the nervous system, then it's going to lead to excitement of the mind, excitement of the body. My nervous system is moving into fight or flight, but it's moving under the action of, of control um, because you know I'm, I'm not panicking myself. I'm just generating that movement inside while staying calm because I'm doing a mindful practice. So what it leads to is the generation of activity and a new idea, and so it's quite inspiring. It's a driving energy on the inside. When I know that on the inside of me, it's very easy to understand how this could be applied to divination because I know that energy is arising at the current moment in the environment. Everything that's inside me is also on the outside. So. Um, uh, macrocosm and microcosm match. So if I'm experiencing that stimulating energy of thunder, if the energy of the, of, the, of the moment is thunder, then I know something similar is happening in the environment around me, so I can expect sudden change, right? So this is one of the greatest ways that the circle walking is used because it gives you then an experiential way to understand the meanings behind the gua. So now you have two things. The I Ching usage will give you wisdom, or, well, <laughs> I haven't got that, I'm still an idiot, but it's moving you in 